All right, today we're going to talk about jealousy. This is called the jealousy of God, and uh, let's pray. Jesus, we uh, come before you, uh, Father, we come before you clothed in the blood of Jesus by faith. Uh, we know that we cannot do anything in our own strength, but we must abide in the vine, and then fruit will be produced in our life as we humbly trust and look to you. Father, we lay our lives completely before you. All our plans are not important. Only, the only thing that matters, Father, is your plans, your kingdom, and your will. And we desire to be people who completely surrender to your will. And that's hard, Father, because your kingdom is invisible. Your kingdom is in serving and in loving and in sacrifice. And God, we don't get credit for that. Our flesh dies a slow, suffocating death as we serve you. And Lord, we want your life to replace our flesh. We want your spirit to replace our own will. And God, we ask that you would do this work in our hearts. We pray that today you would give us a mind to be able to understand your word and, and hearts that are open to hearing and feeling the impressions that you would make through your, your servant Moses today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. We've been, of course, studying the book of Exodus, and Moses has been bringing the children of Israel out of Egypt and into the promised land. That's where they're going, right? And, and, and he, they, they got about halfway there, and then they stopped at Mount Sinai, and God gave the law. And he said, hey, if we're going to do this, you've got you to gotta do these things. And then what did the people do right away? Broke the law, rebelled against it, failed miserably. So Moses goes back to God, and he says, hey, we've really messed up here, but I, I, I think you should forgive these people. I'm going to mediate for these people. I'm going to uh, come before you, God, in your holiness, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you to forgive these people and to restore them. And God listens to that because all that is a foreshadow of who? Jesus. You guys, so awesome. 21 Jesus points for you. And an extra 50% because you sit in the front row. There's a return on an Yes, you get an extra percentage of Jesus points by sitting in the front row. <laughs> So Moses has interceded for these people, and, and, and at the end of that discussion, God's like, yes, that's what I want to do. I want these people. I love these people. So Moses says, well, if you love us, then go with us. Be with us. Take us as your people. Take us, our last discussion last week, take us as your inheritance. We want to be your people. We want you to draw near to us. We will draw near to you. We want to be close to you. This is like an unworthy child asking a wealthy family to adopt them. Think of the people like that. Or think of a, an unfaithful woman who finds an awesome man that wants to marry her. Like this is a relationship that the children of Israel are asking for that they don't deserve. God is way out of their league. And they are, are excited about being with him, but they're unworthy to be with him. So Moses brings these people before God and asks uh, them to be in relationship with him or basically engaged or, or married to him. They want him to be their God. They want to be his people. And what reason does Moses give? Why should God choose these people to be their inheritance? 
Moses said it's because they are super awesome. Nah! <laughs> You're right. It's not because they're super awesome. It's because Moses says we are stiff-necked. Now that is the weirdest reason. Not because they're righteous, not because they really want it, not because of anything these people have brought to the table. But Moses says, the reason why you should choose us, God, the reason why you should marry us is because we are stubborn as mules. Why would he say that? Well, Moses has learned that God is full of grace. And if that's true, God would delight in saving the most wretched people in the world. If his character is all about grace, pouring out undeserved favor and forgiveness, being the most kind that you could be, if that really is who God is, then he is most glorified when he saves the most weak, the most wretched, the most broken, the worst, the baddest people. That's who he should choose to most glorify his own character of grace. And that is what we call good news for you and me. If we were a church that was full of good people, that would not be a good thing. We wouldn't glorify God as much as a church of bad people who have been saved by grace. But it's embarrassing to admit that you're a bad person. It's humbling to admit that you're weak and broken, right? And nobody wants to. Nobody in America wants to. I mean, there's this big like mental health thing and, and the whole, uh, you know, all we want to get help to the me- people who are mentally ill. But what's the big problem? When you're mentally ill, you don't want to confess it. You don't want to admit it because it's embarrassing. And you think, wow, I, I'm kind of broken. And so the big battle is just getting people to say, I need help. And then they try to get them help. And that just shows that each and every one of us, we have inside us a heart of pride and it keeps us from getting help god wants to be the god of grace that saves and transforms every need that we have every part of our lives wow but we don't let him because we're so prideful so that's where we start out where the people are at right now Think about it. The reason God had given for the destruction of his people. Remember, just in this last chapter, God said, Moses, get out of the way. I'm going to strike these people and kill them all. And why? Because of their rebellion. That same reason becomes the motivation for his mercy and grace to now be on these people. All because Moses interceded, mediated for these people. Before Moses, the people's rebellion sends them to hell, right? Rejection of God. After Moses, the people's rebellion becomes the reason God pours mercy and grace out on them. Think about it. My sinfulness should be the reason that God abandons me and sends me to hell. 
I, I mean, there's no excuse for my sin. There's no excuse. But when grace comes in, when Jesus steps in and intercedes for me and mediates for me, my sinfulness becomes the reason that God goes with me and saves me and delivers me and transforms me. My sinfulness is transformed to something that glorifies God because God forgives it, washes it away in his blood, and he gets the glory for taking a dirty sinner and transforming me into his precious son. Isn't that crazy? The same sinfulness. When Jesus comes in, he changes it all, right? Because God gets more glory for forgiving and changing me than he does for sending me to hell. He loves to forgive. Jesus reveals this heart for sin in his own life when Jesus says, "Um, but go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. That's what Jesus said. If you think you're all good, I didn't come for you. I came for people who know that they're bad. The sick are the ones who need a doctor, Jesus said. Remember that? And remember the Pharisees who were always prideful? That was their thing, pride. The prideful Pharisees, they complained in Luke 15 too, that this man receives sinners and eats with them. Remember that? So the idea that God is a God of grace will offend anybody who wants to impress God or people with their own efforts and performance like Pharisees. It will, it will be offensive, this idea of grace. So it's a bummer for prideful Pharisees, but it's good for us. God's grace makes... It gives us an inheritance and makes us God's inheritance. God's grace gives us an inheritance and it also transforms us into God's inheritance. In Acts chapter 20, verse 32, it says, Brethren, I commend you to God and the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. This verse teaches us that grace is able to give us an inheritance, but it's also able to transform us so that we become God's inheritance. So being born again, being changed, both of them have to do with inheritance. When you're born again, you, you are given an inheritance. You're God's child now. When you're changed, God is changing you into his inheritance. When he makes you loving, when he makes you kind, when he starts producing fruits in you, that's for him. So why do you stress out when you don't see it in your own life? Why do you think your value is decreased when you fail to measure up to his standards? It's not about you. It's about him. When you got saved, when you started out with God, that was about you being given an inheritance. When you go continue on with God, that's about God transforming you into his inheritance. Justification is about your inheritance. Sanctification is about God's inheritance. The process of change, or what we call sanctification, 
It's not a list of rules to follow. It's more like falling in love with God. Because for God, an inheritance is not money. He's got all the money in the world. He invented money. He could create all... How could inheritance be about money for God? It's not. Inheritance is not about land, wealth. Inheritance is not about reputation. Inheritance for God is about you and the relationship he wants with you. He treasures you. And he would give up all the treasure in the world for you. Do you guys remember that, that parable Jesus told about the, the pearl of great price that the guy sold all he had to go buy this land that the field was in? A lot of people are like, what do I need to sell to get what God wants to give me? You got yourself wrong in that parable. You're not that guy. That guy in the parable is God who sold all that he had to get the earth which was contained you. When Jesus died, he bought the earth, not because he cares about the earth, he cares about you. You're, you were the pearl of great price that Jesus purchased. And God, Jesus was trying to let you in on a secret. I flippin' love you. I cherish you. And you are my inheritance. And I will do anything for you. It's awesome. His love for us sinners is what changes us into saints. His love is what sanctification is all about. So, question. What happens when someone loves someone you love? Let me start over. Blah. Rewind. What happens when someone you love loves someone else? Ooh, you experience something called jealousy. Sometimes jealousy is wrong, usually when you have no right or claim to that person's life or heart. But when you do have claim on their heart, it is right. A husband has every right to be jealous of the love of his spouse. Not because it's the law that she love him, but because their love is based on covenant, on promises, and he loves her, he treasures her, she is his inheritance. It's based on that. And he can be jealous of the free love response that he desires from his wife. That's what he's jealous for. And God has shown that he loves his people as we've been going through Exodus, he's forgiven their sin. He's provided for their weakness. He's taken them as his own people. And now God makes a promise to make them his inheritance. He's like, I am down with you guys. I love you. I want to be your God. This is like a man finding a woman that he loves and then promising to be faithful and kind to her, to love her. What does this man get out of this? What's in it for him? He wants to be freely loved back. He wants to be loved. Faithfulness is love in action. And that's what God desires of these people. He wants their love. He says, I have loved you first so that hopefully you will learn to love me back. I have chosen you so you can choose me back. God loves these people and he is jealous and passionate for them to love him back. And that's what we're going to see in our text today. 
as we study. But I'm going to read you a Spurgeon quote. Spurgeon quote, Spurgeon quote. There you go. All right, this is a good one. Hide yourselves under the banner of Jehovah's jealousy. It is bloody red. I know. Its symbol bears a thunderbolt and a flame of fire. But hide yourselves, hide yourselves under it. For what enemy shall reach you there? If it be to God's glory to save me, I am entrenched behind a stupendous rock. If it would render God inglorious to let me, a poor sinner, descend into hell, if it would open the mouths of devils and make them say that God is not faithful to his promise, then I am secure. For God's glory is wrapped up in my salvation. And the one cannot fail because the other cannot be tarnished. See, God's jealousy for you is because he's promised to save you. He loves you. And so he will not abandon you. So we can't abandon him. We shouldn't abandon him. All right, let's begin in our text. In Exodus chapter 34, 34, we're starting verse 10. He said, Behold, I make a covenant. God is responding to Moses, who's asked, Moses again, has asked God to marry these people, to be faithful, like to bring us near to you. We want to be your people. And so God says, fine, I'm going to make a promise, like, like a marriage vow. This is his vows, right? God is agreeing to take these people. He says, I'm going to make a covenant, but it's not on your terms, people. They don't get to just do whatever they want, just like you can't go sleep with whoever you want once you've gotten married. There are terms to this covenant, to this relationship, faithfulness. He makes this covenant. God does. He doesn't ask their opinion. If we're doing this, God says we are doing it my way. My way. I am going to make this covenant. Going on, he says, but all your people, before, excuse me, before all your people, I will do marvels such as have not been done in all the earth, nor in any nation, and all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. This is a pretty bold claim by God. He's saying, uh, because if you think about it, God's already done all the crazy stuff. He's already legitimately done some awesome things, like the 10 plagues in Egypt. Totally crazy. He did the burning bush, the parting of the Red Sea, the defeating of the Amalekites, the water from the rock, the manna from heaven, the fire on the mountain. He has been just throwing out miracles like they're candy. He's so, he, and he says, you haven't seen nothing yet. You haven't seen anything. God says that the next thing that they see is going to be the really awesome miracle. So what on earth could be better or more marvelous than all of these natural miracles that we've seen so far in the book of Exodus? The answer is that he is going to transform his people in their heart. God says that is way cooler than anything you've seen. And that's what we call sanctification. Transforming someone from a sinner in behavior to a saint. 
changing them by his love and by his faithfulness through this marriage relationship that he's going to enter in with them, God is going to be glorified most and people are going to be blown away the most by what he's going to do in their lives, in their hearts. So look what he says. Observe what I command you this day. All right, so we stop there. What I'm thinking in my mind, my depraved mind, is get ready for a list of rules. Observe what I command you this day. Get ready for a list of rules. All this stuff I'm going to have you do. And guess what? That is not what we're going to see here. What we are going to see here is God says, I want your love. I want your heart. Get ready because I'm going to ask for it. I'm going to ask for your heart. And you know what? We hate that. I would rather have a list of rules. Because when I have to open my heart to anybody, even God, I'm really gun shy because I've been hurt before. And it is so difficult for us as people to open up and be vulnerable in, our, in, the, in the deepest part of ourselves, our heart. But God says, that's where I'm going. I don't care about the list of rules that you want to go with. I want to go to the heart. So I'm going to ask for you to love me. And that's crazy. We don't like it. He says, behold, I am driving out from before you the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Hizzite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. And we're going to see this list many, many times as we go through the Bible. You've probably seen it hundreds of times as you've read through it. And this is a list of people that God has not chosen and who have not chosen him. These are people who want nothing to do with God. They're not in relationship with God. So he is going to make room for those people who are in relationship with him. Now, as we get into the reality of this situation, any of those people who want to can join Israel. And some do. Anyone who wants to come and become a Jew and become one of God's people has every right to do that. And God sets up a whole way that that can happen. But as a whole, these people groups reject God and they don't want relationship. And so God says, I'm going to make room for those who do want me and love me. So he says, take heed to yourself, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land where you are going, lest it be a snare in your midst. He's saying to his people, do not fall in love with anyone else. I and yours, and you are mine. And we're not letting anyone else into this party. This is you and me. This is our marriage. This is nobody else but us. It will only cause you pain and trouble, God says. Then he says, But you shall destroy their altars, break their sacred pillars, and cut down their wooden images. All right. This is what, you know, super cons- conservative, you know, Bible school people love. Let's go to war against sin. Let's go to war against TV. Let's go to war against iniquity. Everything we think is wrong in the world, let's break it down. Let's cut it down. Is that what it's saying? They were to do that in real life. 
uh, the children of Israel, because God was giving them this land and it was to be their land. And God has said, this is yours. And the people who are there were worshiping all these other idols and all these other things. And God says, you have to purge that. I'm going to purge it, but you can't fall in love with the way they do things. You got to love me. What, this, what does this mean to us as Christians? Because we don't have altars among our city that we need to tear down. Or maybe we could spiritualize it and say, yes, it does. Yes, if we, if we all get picket signs, that's us going to war against iniquity in this world, right? That's not what he's talking about. In your life, there is going to be a constant battle for your love and affection. God says, I love you but you're easily distracted by many things. I'm asking you, God says, to choose me. You have to choose me. I've already chosen you, so choose me back. Don't even be nice to temptation. Just destroy it. Does this mean that we need to wage war on everything in the world, like drugs, sex, and rock and roll? Actually, no. We are to wage a spiritual war against things that keep us from enjoying this spiritual inheritance that we receive from Jesus. That's what this means. So those things are bad because they become idols, because we start to love them more than we love God. And God says, we're not doing that. This is all about you and me, and what gets in the way is things called idols. Anything that we put our faith in or anything we look to to meet our needs or give us value is an idol if it's not Jesus. That's what idols are. Jesus is jealous for this part of your heart, the whole thing. He demands your faith and deserves your faith. But often, I place my faith willingly in something else or someone else. Like a harlot who seeks value or money in the arms of different lovers, that is me. That's us. And he says, that's the battle here. Nothing else is going to meet your needs. Your job is not your identity. Your marriage is not your identity. Your children are not your identity. Your games, your life, nothing in your life is your identity when you're married to God. When you're in relationship with God, he demands it all. He deserves it all. He says here in our text, For you shall worship no other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. He's saying, guys, I am jealous for you. I am extremely passionate about you. Jealous is the Hebrew word kana. Uh, yeah, everyone sound weird like me. Kana. There you go. This word in Hebrew is used only of God. No human can, can have this same exact word said of them. They have a different word for human jealousy. And it, it means that he will literally, well, here, here's the definition. It means God will not bear against any rival. He will not bear with any rival. No, I'm not going to bear with a rival. You can't have something besides me. No, that doesn't work. I'm God. Are you kidding me? 
I don't bear with this. Like, that's, that's what it means. He will literally fight anyone who loves you or who you think you love. Anyone you are tempted to love, he's the best boyfriend ever. He will just fight them. But in a completely righteous way. All right. I'm going to read you a quote from Sam Storms. I found this one this week. I thought it was good. Divine jealousy is thus a zeal to protect a love relationship or avenge it when it is broken. Jealousy in God is a passionate energy by which he is provoked and stirred and moved to take action against whatever or whoever stands in the way of his enjoyment of what he loves and desires, which is you. The intensity of God's anger and threats to this relationship is directly proportionate to the depths of his love. Jealousy in God is not a green-eyed monster, but a red-faced lover who will, bro- who will um, break his rivals for the relationship with his people. Wow. God has earned this people's love. He asks for their love. He demands their love. And he will fight for their love. I am jealous. You can, that's my name, he says. And I am a jealous God. But he will not compel their love. He asks for it. He says it's, hap- it's got to happen this way. But he will not force their love. He will warn them. If you choose to love or worship another, this is what's going to happen. Let's read lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land and they play the harlot and they play the harlot with their gods and make sacrifices to their gods and one of them invites you to eat of his sacrifice and you take of his daughters for your sons and his daughters play the harlot with their gods and make your sons play the harlot with their gods if you choose to love another god says you will be a harlot and you're doing it to yourself, God says. God is not the one getting laughed at, getting, like ruining his own reputation, getting ridiculed for unfaithfulness. God is not, the, is not the one who will bear the consequences of us playing the harlot. We will. But that doesn't mean that God is a cold, unfeeling machine. He feels the pain of his jealousy. His heart is torn in two when we choose another Read the book of Hosea if you want to know the depths of God's feelings on this topic. And he says here, what's going to happen if you, if you play the harlot, if you fall in love with something else, it will demand sacrifice from you. It will demand a sacrifice from you. What did Jesus say? I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Now, what does that mean? Because we're supposed to give all for God, right? But he says, if you give everything and give even your body to be burned, but not with love, then it's pointless, right? So there's two ways to give everything. We can give everything like we give everything to an idol. 
which is I'm going to show you how much I care. I'm going to show you how much I love. Look at what I'm giving up for you because I want to earn your acceptance. That's one way. The other way is you have sacrificed for me. You have loved me and I gladly give all of my life. I open up to you like a bride does for her husband. I, give, I would give everything for you because I cherish you and love you and you're mine. That's the right way to give everything, with love, because of love. And God says, you, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. You want to know what I want? I don't want you to think you have to impress me. I don't want you to think you have to give up everything for me to be pleased with you. I am so pleased with you because I have chosen you. I love you. And my, I gave up everything for you. So you just follow me and love me and then do whatever you want because what you want when you're loving God and when you're loved by God is what? His will. That's how his will is birthed in you. The love relationship of a husband and wife births new life. The love relationship of you and God births his will in your life. New life in you. Okay, guys. Super hard question time. Heavy hitting. Closing of the sermon. Dun dun. Are we playing the harlot? Are we offending God in the things that we love? Ask yourself this question. Is there anything my hands in my hands that I won't put down when I hear his voice? Is there anything in my heart that I won't surrender when his voice comes calling? Is there anything that I treasure or need that comes before God? God will always jealously discipline his child that chooses an idol instead of God. And how does that discipline feel? How does it look? It's... um, it looks like this. Man, feels like my peace has just been taken away. When we feel a lack of peace, generally, that is God's work in our life to say, you need to come back to me with all your heart. Because God says, when you, what does uh, Philippians 4, 6 say? I'll just read it to you so I don't misquote it. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. So, peace is our promise. And if you're not experiencing that supernatural peace, peace that can't even be understood, I'm just so at peace, if you're not experiencing that right now, you should be. And what was the way to that peace? Prayer. Intimacy with God. 
casting your anxiety, your prayers, your requests on God. He says, that relationship will result in my promise of peace being experienced in your life. I guarantee it. And you're like, well, I'm not experiencing it. I don't believe you. I don't care. That's what the Bible says. So you have your experience. God has his word. I'm going to believe his word. I don't know everyone's experience. I can't possibly imagine all that you've gone through and all the pain that you've suffered and where pain is, is mixed with peace and how that all goes. I don't understand it all. But I do know God is always faithful to his word. And he said, dig in to me. Trust me. And you will experience my peace. God is all in with us. He's jealous for us. And he's asking for us to be all in with him. And that probably means that we need to repent. So what does that mean? God, I'm going to try to love you more. That doesn't work. Here's what repentance looked like. Number one, you just agree with God. Man, I don't love you like I should. That's so much better than saying, but I'm trying to love you. Just admit, with God, agree with God that you don't love him as you should. I don't love you as I should. Step two, ask God for his Holy Spirit to change you. God, would you help me to love you? Would you put a new spirit in me that truly loves you? And then step three, step forward in faith, believing that God has answered that prayer. Okay, God, I love you. I want to walk in loving you. I want to walk in your love. I want to walk led by your spirit. And that is how we repent when we've offended the jealousy of God. God is very jealous for us, right, guys? So let's stand up. We're going to pray. And we're going to sing a couple songs and draw near to God. Uh, So thank you guys for studying the word of God with me. Thank you guys for coming on Mother's Day to church and putting God, you know, first and receiving his love first. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we lift up our hands and our hearts. We want to open to receive your love, because you have done great things for us. We have many, many reasons to put our hope and trust in you, uh, but first and foremost, because you have asked us to love you. You have, you have uh, chosen us and loved us first. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us, showing and proving your everlasting love. And God, we repent. We have not loved you the way we should in every step of our life. We do, and any love that we have loved you with, you put in there by the Holy Spirit. Any goodness in us is from you. We need your Holy Spirit to transform our hearts so we love you more and more. We need that, God, and we're asking you to answer that prayer today. And I believe, and the word says, that when we ask for your Holy Spirit, you give it 100% of the time. So, Father, we ask. And we're going to step forward to worship you right now. We're going to raise hands in faith, believing that the love that we're giving you is from you. That you're implanting it in our hearts, transforming us in new ways by your spirit. God, you give us everything of your heart. You open yourself up to being hurt even by us. And I pray, God, that you'd help us to trust you, to be vulnerable before you, 
and uh, open up our hearts. Let your words speak, even convicting in our hearts. We want to know when we fail. We want to know what needs to change. And God, we're going to trust you to do all that work for us, in us, and through us by your wonderful grace. In Jesus' name, we pray with confidence. Amen.